Hi, James. Ben, how are you? Pretty terrible. Oh, no. What's happened? Uh, We are starting 39 minutes late because uh, I took me longer than expected to recover emotionally from the Milwaukee Bucks season coming to an end. Oh, my gosh. I I figured there was a good reason for you running late. I didn't realize it was that good a reason. (laughs) I appreciate your generosity in classifying (laughs) as a good reason because it is a good reason. Uh, Who are the Milwaukee Bucks? Yeah, see. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. So you're gonna have to carry me this podcast. I'm a bit. I'm a bit of a. I'm, I'm a bit of a puddle right now. Uh, let's, and let's yeah, I'm feeling unmotivated and and sad and despondent and frustrated and mad and lots of things. Oh so, man. Yeah. So we're, we're, we're so let's do this podcast without a plan and with me being uh, emotionally unstable. These are always the most fun ones. <laughs> I, I, you, do you have Do you have any alcohol nearby, perchance? You know, it, it is it is eleven in the morning, but I I <laughs> walked past my liquor cabinet like three times, just like thinking, you know, I, I could justify it. It's just I'll be right back. It'll keep things interesting. He's really going for it. I'm impressed. Okay, ready to podcast. Let's go. Oh, oh, okay, I was about to. I was about to spool up into one of my monologues, which I haven't done for almost a hundred episodes. Everyone's gonna be wondering now: Did I actually just go and pour myself a drink or not? Mm, we'll leave them. Well, they'll know pretty soon, I'm sure. <laughs> Our thanks to Mailchimp for sponsoring Exponent, as they do every week. When you connect your store to Mailchimp, if you have an e-commerce store, they'll analyze the purchase history of each customer, and make smart data-driven predictions about what they'll want to buy in the future. It's enterprise-level technology made simple for everyone. Just drag and drop. You can send personalized product recommendations. You can detect purchasing patterns and use them to automatically predict buying behavior. You can target the right people with the right products, and you can learn more about each customer's individual purchase history and recommended items by viewing their subscriber profile. That is just one of the many things you could do with Mailchimp. And our thanks to them for sponsoring Exponent. Yeah, that's a cool product and we're grateful to have them as sponsors so thank you guys a nice changing of your wording yeah yeah i know you're making me all self-aware so uh i i wrote about google this week and we could talk about that a little bit i think i think one thing that i'm interested in is in some respects that was a there's a broad the sort of broader shifts there's a lot of things that we've talked about I think over the what 100 what number is this 112 the 112 yeah uh, the the 112 episodes and it it really feels like the one that we just come back to again and again was was like number six or seven I don't remember I'll have to look up which one it was but we there being two sort of related concepts actually I, I don't know if this was the same episode if it was two different ones the one concept being the jungle concept where yes. there's the few really huge platforms and then lots of stuff in the jungle floor and absolutely nothing in the middle. And the other one being the antitrust paradox that is raised by sort of aggregation theory. And we, we didn't call it aggregation theory back then. But the conundrum of companies being better, like Facebook being better, Google being better, and that being better leading to having more market power and that market power being a factor in being better. Like that that's what's so difficult about this is that Google, the larger Google gets, the better Google is as a product mm. for gets more data, gets more input, gets mm-hmm. more understanding of, of what's better, what's worse. And what does that mean for building a a viable, thriving sort of market in the long run? 
Well, it's really hard because once these virtuous cycles take hold, they're almost impossible to arrest. And if you have one of these companies in in the grips of one, it it just it sucks all the oxygen out of the room for everybody else. So there's only that these guys are the only ones that are left in their respective markets. Right, and and you know the thing that's that's tough is to talk about Google. I think you know a few years ago Google got in hot water, you know, appropriately so for basically. Well, this is an interesting example for basically like scraping like Yelp listings and and a few other sites and then populating like their own sort of instant answers or like hmm. maps, things like that with data that was basically collected by other sites. What makes this tricky is, you know, I think the the competitive antitrust sort of issues with that behavior are pretty obvious. But for me as a user, having better, more relevant Google search results is a good thing. Like I, you know, like I, I would rather just use Google or use Google maps in particular than have to open up Yelp every time. And, and so that's sort of the conundrum in a nutshell, like that their bad behavior made you know, my life better in a, in a way that usually doesn't happen with monopolies. Right. I mean, in the old, in the old world, when you had a monopoly, what would happen is you would, you would, instead of focusing on maximizing revenue, you would focus on maximizing profit. And the best way to do that would be to restrict supply to consumers, typically. And that would drive prices that consumers paid up. Whereas in this instance, the experience you receive is better because there's less clicking. It's more immediate. And I mean, I think if you step back and view it objectively, you can see where you, you want Yelp rewarded in some way for what they've done. But if you're a consumer, all you care about is the answer. You don't care who did all the hard work. I mean, you might care about it in theory, but when you're trying to find the restaurant that you want to go for dinner, if you can just like, you want to get to it as few click, clicks as possible. And that's what Google enabled. Right, exactly, and this is and this is really the analogy to the Facebook stuff that we talked about last week. Where in a world with basically zero marginal cost, in the, where the consumer surplus ends up being, you know, is massive because mm. you know if there is no marginal cost, it's basically all consumer surplus on top of mm-hmm. that. Where is the cost being born? And you know, certainly in the case of Google, you can see in the long run the potential cost is that there ends up being. If there were no Yelp, would there be the sort of product listings that Google, you know, sort of uh, borrowed <laughs> for to, to put right. it to, to put it in a certain perspective? You know, there was a story this week about Google taking instant answers of like celebrity like net worth or something, and like the site that published all those answers, leaving aside you know the sort of uh, whether that's you know the, the privacy issues and all sort of mm-hmm. thing, but the site that that got all that information is decimated and and Google like benefits and like what happens when those sites stop existing yeah i mean ev- everyone suffers uh, and it's not just that it's it, it, the the entrepreneur who's thinking about uh investing their resources to create something like this if they know if the outcome of being successful is that Google comes along and gives them a the kiss of death by by sucking in their data into the instant answers, uh, instant answers part, and and the the person looking for the information doesn't need to leave a Google property. Like those folks who are generating that data, they have that they're not being rewarded. And someone who's thinking about creating the next one of those things, why on earth would you do it? Google's just going to take what I've done, and I'm I'm going to get I'm going to get to a point where I'm looking like finally I'm seeing some success. Finally, my costs are being repaid, and then boof, it's gone. 
The question, though, is, you know, what is the like? What's the what's the answer? Like, what's the, what's the alternative? I mean, the the reason to go back to the jungle sort of analogy, we we're describing that as as an inevitability, as, as an outcome. Mm. Like, th- there's not like. Yes, there. You could argue that what Google did to Yelp back in the day was a bad thing, and what Facebook has done to Snapchat is a bad thing. Again, I actually have more problem with the Google Yelp thing than I do with the Facebook Snapchat thing mm-hmm. for all the things that yeah. we, for all the things we discussed last week. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, we I've talked a lot about the problem with the internet is putting zero in all the equations, where mm-hmm. in the equations just all sort of don't make sense yeah. anymore. And to what extent does that apply to the sort of just the proper organization of an economy sort of in the long run. It's it's an interesting conundrum, but there's a, a perhaps a different way of thinking about it is that these two companies, at least, when you think about Google and Facebook, are locked in, to a certain extent, a kind of, I mean, a, a battle for people's attention on the internet. And I don't, I think it's going to be challenging for, it's going to be challenging for an outside actor, government or regulator to come along and say, hey, like what you did was breaking this law. And it's, it's going to require a whole new way of thinking about regulation. And we've talked about that and it's difficult. But another way of looking at this is all those actors, um, Existing in those various ecosystems, uh, Google more on the open side of the web and Facebook in its own closed ecosystem that it's kind of creating relies on people inside of each of those ecosystems to provide the value that draws people into them. And particularly in the case of Google, if it if it just takes these things, every time someone creates it, if it just takes it, sucks it up, and then... Uh, and then leaves the people who are creating folks in these ecosystems to wither, people are going to be less and less likely to create things on the open web. So I guess what I'm driving at is maybe there's actually an incentive for Google to start incentivizing uh, people who do this. And if they pull information down into instant answers, in the same way they might have rewarded the person who created that site, if if they're driven a whole bunch of traffic and then people have clicked on ads, maybe they say, okay, we're going to pull in instant answers, just like uh, the person might have gone to your site but every time we display that, we're going to provide you with information, uh, provide you with some kind of reward for it, some kind of money to say, hey, we're rewarding you for pulling that information in. We're, we're taking your traffic, but here's the recompense for doing so. Yeah. The, the problem is what's the sort of incentive for Google to do that? And I think that the, the trouble you get in with monopolies is you lose the you lose the the pain sensation, mm. right? It's like it's pain that makes you do things a certain way, and if you don't feel pain, then mm. you do you do dumb things, right? In the mm. long run, because you you don't you don't feel them and feel them in the short run. And the other thing that makes this such a muddled issue is a lot of what you just said is what like the newspaper industry is demanding. They want Google to give them money for having their link their links on like Google News, for example. And I think that's ridiculous <laughs> you know like there's there's an aspect here where these are uncompetitive business models that mm. are competing in a you know completely undifferentiated sort of manner you know they, they, they built these businesses with the presumption of a monopoly of presumption of being the only competitor in a limited area now they're on in an arena where they're competing with with every other newspaper and publication and blog whatever the entire world and they're not properly set up to do that 
and they're blaming Google for their problems. You know what I mean? And I don't think the answer either is to suggest that it's Google's responsibility to compensate obsolete business models either. That's just as problematic as far as pushing into the future as anything else is. Oh, totally, totally agree. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying you made that. I'm just saying like the argument you made it happens to be the same argument, and that's what makes this sort of a, a very tricky thing to say. I guess I, I there is a small distinction in terms of um, if you if you were to if Google were to replicate the entire news that the newspaper had created, like if I went to uh, a Google site and rather than just the headline and the first the first line of it and then a link to the newspaper, if Google were to pull out like the first few paragraphs of it, so I didn't need to click through, then I think they're more analogous. But w- what's happening with these I- instant articles is that they are they are eliminating the need to click through. I think that's, and I'm not saying Google has a responsibility to do it. I'm wondering about thinking about this from the perspective of competitive advantage. Like if you are starting to lose the attention war to Facebook on the basis of the, the way that the two companies are thinking about it, is there some is there some way that they can set up a model where players in the open web are more likely to put content just on Google and limit it from Facebook in some way, for example, in order to get more of the attention back onto the open web? I'm not sure. It was just a it was just a thought experiment. Yeah. No, it, that's why but that's why you know I'm I'm pushing back on it because I think it, it highlights there are no easy answers here. Mm. And, mm-hmm. You know, the other sort of big story uh, for the last couple of weeks has been lots of folks writing about uh, rash of retail closures of, of stores going bankrupt. Yeah. Of, of malls and stuff like that, which I was thought about writing about it. Then I'm like, well, I think basically wrote about this last year, it, both in the sense of it happening in some places, but also that clearly this is going to happen. And it's a, it's a great example of to some extent, you know, Amazon is becoming ever more dominant, e-commerce mm-hmm. generally, and particularly Amazon. And to another extent, there's the just the the whole business model of the old world is kind of falling apart. And it's really interesting. You can actually sort of analogize what happened to news to what happened to retail. Like it used to be, you know, with the news thing, there, there was like one you know, a geographic, it was all a sort of a geographic area, right? And then the you, what happened was you could have one story, like one news story, and this is what the AP basically did, or Reuters, or other wire services. You would have the same story would basically run in multiple newspapers all over the United States or all over the world, all at the same time, and they would all make money from doing that. Mm. And you kind of see the same thing with retail, where you would have like big chains, whether it be like Gap or Abercrombie and Fitch or whatever it might be, where it's basically the same thing reproduced all over the place, and having its own sort of brand and differentiation in all these sort of individual areas. And now it's it's one big market. Like if you go to Amazon or if you go online or wherever it might be shopping for all kinds of things, it's just one thing. It's like the 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 plane of competition is just so fundamentally different. It is, and and the the folks that are rethinking 
uh, understanding that distribution in and of itself is no longer an edge and rethinking the the basis of competitive advantage are the ones that are doing well. So you can see suppliers, for example, like suppliers who are supplying both into Walmart and Amazon are being squeezed from, from both sides. Like both of them are saying, well, I don't want the other one getting the higher price or if you want to keep supplying me, you have to give it to me lower or so on and so forth. But then you have new players and I was reading an interesting case study of uh, a company that's providing uh, sports drinks and recognizing that in the new world, you want to have low shipping costs. If you are supplying, if you're supplying stuff to Amazon, shipping becomes an important factor. So rather than uh, shipping it pre-made, they have developed this drink that's very easy. It's, it's, it's uh, like it comes in solid form, like a powder, and then you pre-mix it, specifically designed for Amazon and doing super, super well. And there are more and more instances of these companies that are rethinking what it takes to compete online and thinking about building it for that environment first. And on the other hand, like companies that have figured out that you need something unique, whether it's an experience or a product you can't get anywhere else to make retail stuff to make retail, traditional retail still work, seem to be doing great. Like Apple's continuing to open stores and it's because they have this set of products and they are differentiated and they provide this unique experience in the stores that give people a reason to go into the stores. There's no price advantage to buying online versus in the stores. Like it's being completely thought through for the new world. And the companies that are in a position to do that or are created in order to do that will do well. And those ones that remain stuck with the assumptions of the old world are going to continue to struggle and probably end up, most of them are going to go extinct. Yeah, I, I think to, to the way to think about this is the the sort of like spectrum has expanded. And, and what I mean is, you know, if you think about like you know an eight bit display or a sixteen bit display or whatever, like the the range, the dynamic range of like colors that can be displayed is is like mm. very limited, right? And so in that world, in a sort of narrow sort of world, to have a store that was uh you know that th- that was available in all kinds of cities and malls over over the United States or wherever it might be, that was scale. That was to have scale, and it was that scale and being available. And not having other options that allowed you to be successful. Mm. Now, though, the spectrum's massive. Like there's millions and millions of colors on the spectrum, or whatever it might be. And the difference between the color on one end and on the other end is huge. And that just really changes the it changes the nature of competition. And I think your point about experience is spot on. There's there's no longer a being in the right place at the right time and waiting for customers to come to you, right? Yes. It's one thing to be the coolest store in the mall when all the teenagers are going to the mall to hang out. It's another thing to be a brand that teenagers or whoever it might be will actually seek out in the middle of the the plethora of information that is being online and sitting around and being on Snapchat or Facebook or whatever it might be, whatever the youngins do these days. <laughs> and, and to be able to cut through that is it, it just requires something very fundamentally different than what was required previously. And you're right. And it, it, it's very hard to see how brands can really adapt or companies can adapt when everything about them was built on a completely different paradigm. 
I mean, it's the same way that I, I mean, I like your I like your color analogy.、Uh, <laughs> I wonder how many of the folks that are listening never actually experienced what it was like to just have a grayscale. Or a, I know I'm increasingly a, dating myself every podcast. Yeah, I know. Yeah, well, I I almost didn't I almost didn't realize that that was a even a might be a problem for、uh, people who are listening. But it you're right. It used to kind it it used to suck. Like it, it's it's similar to. What happened with content and Facebook? Like it was just enough that you were the best news source because people were、uh, people were just looking for news, or you.、Uh, no, you it, would... it was just enough that you were a source because、yes. how many how many newspapers did you have to choose from? Uh, very limited, but not only not only has the internet meant that you can choose from any newspaper.、Uh, Facebook means that your like attention is not being attention is now being equally divided across all different areas. So it's news mixed in with news about your friends, mixed in with photos of the baby or whatever's like all these things, and it's almost the same thing in retail. Like you are not just about selling clothes anymore. Or selling this thing, you have to have an experience that is going to, in the same way, it's going to create,、uh, like it's、uh, Facebook's algorithm is going to recognize that this piece of content, whatever it might be, is so engaging that it's going to rise it to the raise it to the top. So when you log in, that's what you see. Like that's almost the approach you need to take to retail. It's not just enough to have a store and sell some stuff. You have to have something so compelling that it's going to cause people to think, "Ah, I actually want to." Go there. Of all the things I can do, of all the places I can buy or spend my time, I want to take time out to go spend it there because of something. And it might be to buy something unique, or it might be for some unique experience. But you are competing against a whole range of things, many more than you were previously. Yeah. The other re- way to think about it is, and I think an interesting way to analogize news and retail is that news was always delivered in a bundle. It was, you know, the newspaper was a bundle. There was, you know, the, the news、uh. on the front page. There was sports. There was business. There was comics. There was the horoscope. There was, you know, the crossword puzzle. There was all sorts of things that went into a newspaper, and that is one of the many reasons why it was such a compelling economic model. It's not just the geographic limitation; it's that it, it attracted a massive audience because there was something for everyone, and. One of the other devastating impacts the internet has had on newspapers is not just the entire like you're competing with other people against news and distribution is free and all those things we talked about. It's that the bundle has been unbundled, right? There are、mm. there are all kinds of funny things and amusing things. Look at the internet, not just the comics. There are this whole BuzzFeed.、Mm. I don't care if I made this point on the podcast previously. This whole BuzzFeed quiz thing will guess your age by you picking like these five foods or whatever.、Uh-huh. That's the horoscope reinvented, right? Yes, it like、totally. that, and people love it. They they will click those things over and over and over again, and but that means they're not. They're, Buzzfeed has atomized it, atomized it, atomized, atomized it. it. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And and so it, it's been unbundled, and that's one of the same thing with sports, same thing with you know with news, same thing with business, same thing with every, all the parts of the newspaper. Yeah, and, I. Oh, No, sorry. You you were taking a breath to pause, or maybe taking a, a swig of that whiskey that you have in your hand. Sorry, <laughs> I, I was about to jump in, but I'll let you finish. Well, the, the, you see a similar thing, I suspect, particularly with something like a mall, where a mall had all kinds of stores and all kinds of things, the food courts and movie theaters and all that sort of stuff. 
to deliver a bundle that would attract all kinds of different people. And once you're there, you will partake in all the different things that are that are you know on on offer. Uh, when it comes to buying online, though, it's very, very different. You have to go to a site. You have to search for something. The When the end result is a search box or the primary way of like getting attention is a picture in a, in, in a stream, that's just fundamentally different than the sort of browsing and brand-based play that made sense in the mall bundle. And this is something that, again, it just doesn't – like you so you see the bifurcation you see on one side you have massive amounts of sort of generic goods that are mm. good enough and then you're going to have this super you know things that cut through and again it's all connected like if you when you buy your new item and you want to take a picture and post on Instagram like is there any satisfaction that comes from posting a picture of a branded shirt that is available in every mall in America no, no. like that like when your whole area was just your high school, your geographic area to where the cool kids' clothes was was mm-hmm. was fine. It's not very cool when everyone is wearing the same thing. Yeah, it's. I mean, this goes back to um, this goes back to one of the ways in which you really cut through and uh, with stratechery, which is the the insight that fundamentally there are really only two strategies. There's differentiated. Or there's cutting to price, and this is what this is what the internet is doing. Is is there was there was more possibilities between in between, but the internet is just pushing things to the extreme. What what what's interesting though is that there are smart entrepreneurs recognizing that the there are human behaviors that the mall had captured that still lie latent and um, people want to take advantage of so the way shopping is evolving right now is into a very individualistic type activity a solo type thing like you go buy something on amazon by yourself or whatever and maybe you send it to friends but probably not I, i was reading just recently in bloomberg about a chinese startup and it's really interesting starting to see all these startups um, unicorns, no less, starting to emerge out of China. One that was really interesting is called Pinduoduo or PDD, and basically it's an idea of it's it's almost like mashing up Facebook and Groupon. And the idea being that you kind of do social shopping, you talk about what you want to get, you share some items, and if you and maybe a few of your friends buy the same thing, then you get a discount. So it's there's a reason to bring people in together. That discount is kind of like the lure to get people together beyond the general social element of just shopping, which is when you think about teens at the mall or when you when you walk around the mall it's it's actually pretty common to see people go and do it together that behavior of doing these things together is being replicated online and it, who knows how this startup's going to work out but it's like all these insights of like seeing how people behaved and then trying to replicate that online uh, there are plenty of opportunities and this is what's going to displace like this could potentially be the new westfield like the, a, a concept like this it's interesting. I mean, I, I suspect that the the communal aspect is w- w- will be in a different will be in a different place. I mean, the one thing that's really interesting is some of the retail retailers that are doing very well in this environment is like TJ Maxx and like Marshalls and 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 ones like that. And online, an equivalent would be something like Wish. And 
these are the sort of discount retailers where you go in and it's like name brand stuff, but it's all like, you know, off season or, or overstock or whatever it might be. And one of the reasons I suspect they succeed is not just the, well, there's an aspect of they, they save money. So it's, it's, it's low price. And there's Mm -hmm. also sort of the, like, it's an experience. You have to go and find, you have to search out something. You have to find something, right? It's, it's, it's a challenge. Oh, don't underestimate that. Like the, the whole dollar store, that like it was built on the idea of a treasure hunt, which is like you never know what you're going to find when you get there. Right, and again, that's not not to overstate that. Certainly, lots of people shop there because they're you know that's all they they can afford. And and I'm not trying to say like glorify that, say that, that you know that that that's a great thing. But there is some aspect of they enjoy feeling like they got a deal and like yeah, mm. the thrill of the hunt, like you said. And you know, you see that sort of behavior again. Wish is a really interesting example of it here where they have all kinds of these just crazy amount of products some of which are may or may not be you know entirely worth it but they're all super cheap and you'll never find stuff like that anywhere and it's it's a it's a big hit because people like they like finding it and then the the communal aspect is the show off right it's the reveal it's the instagram photo or or Mm. the, the the snapchat you know story whatever that shows you know what you got and that sort of displaying aspect, uh, you know, I, I don't know. It, it, I, again, I'm, I'm, I'm not a teenager. I don't have a teenager yet, thankfully. But it, it is fascinating to think about how that shift may or may not have occurred, and what you know, what's sort of driving it. Yeah, but the, the in re, re, and the people that end up making the money are the ones that get to the fundamentals of human behavior because. We don't change and the jobs that we have in our lives don't change. And it's just the, the outlets for us being able to accomplish what we, we hope to, what we hope to achieve. Like they change. And if prices start shifting or there's a better range online or there's a, there's a way of revealing to all our friends at the same time, the, the, what we purchased and we can get, uh, like we get we, the feeling of more social gratification from doing it that way as opposed to shopping in small groups. Like then people's behavior will start to change. And it's those folks who recognize that the, the needs, the, the jobs, uh, they haven't changed. It's just like I can provide a better way of getting the same thing done. Those are the folks that end up making lots of money around this stuff. And what's interesting is you, I mean, you kind of hinted at this earlier, but this is a similar to the sort of thing that happened to news where you end up with a bifurcation between just bog standard, everyone kind of gets the same sort of thing. You have to deliver it at a low price at cost. Mm. What, you know, which is the vast majority of news, and you achieve by getting scale and having lower costs, and you know, understanding the data and virality loops and all those sorts of things that companies like BuzzFeed do, which we've we've talked about. And on the flip side, when it comes to retail, that's you know, certainly Amazon is making like Amazon's apparel sales are. I don't even realize it. Like they're they're huge and growing super quickly, and you're going to see you know that. But on the flip side, you you can be very differentiated. You can cut through. Because the internet makes that possible. In the case of, of retail, same thing. You can cut through it. And also the payoff and the desirability that you get from that is changed by social media, is changed by the, yeah. by, by the show off. And But again, you're right. The, the bigger picture is the dramatic pushing to the extremes. And all these companies that were in the middle predicated yeah. on a different world with different distribution mechanisms, with different constraints, are all, are all in trouble. 
This is something that you've brought up as well, which is all these things start, all these, this, this ecosystem in the old world is all connected and you start picking at it and it's going to be interesting to see how the whole thing falls together. Like you've got, you've got media, which is where all these brands used to advertise and that's slowly starting to change. Well, it's, it's changed pretty dramatically, but some of these big brands are starting to change. And then you, you, the, the retail associated with it. And then the cars that, or maybe people don't have cars anymore. Like, and part of not needing a car is like, I mean, I don't need to go shopping uh, or I have Uber and I can get to work more easily. And it, given I don't have a car, it's just much more easy to buy things online. And all the old, old things are tied together and you start pulling at the threads and it slowly starts untangling. And and in the same way, all these new things without even realizing it, it's happening. Like there's no one sitting there between in Amazon talking to Uber about like the effect that they're having and how there are all these synergies between the two things. But the nature of these and as they're springing up and as the fundamental technology, things like mobile and the cloud are enabling them, they're, they're like springing up together and creating a whole new set of assumptions for people to operate in. Right. And this is where the, the assumption question is interesting and, and where this, you know, almost comes full circle is this idea, this jungle idea of there being the really big platforms of Amazon handling distribution by and large of selling all the super cheap stuff. And then, you know, then there being a platform, whether it be Facebook, whether it be Instagram, whether it be Google, whatever it might be for the individualized differentiated sellers, whether that be news, whether it be retail, whether it be whatever, to sort of be featured, right? I mean, the mm. the, the, the thing about strategy is all the things that work in media are to my benefit, right? Mm. So for me, social media is the best marketing channel ever. It's yeah. amazing. Like I get, I, I get, you know, what's the whole reason why social media companies are valuable? Because everyone, all the content, which is super expensive to create, is created for free. It's amazing, right? Mm. I get the same thing. All the advertising and marketing that you used to have to do to, to make people aware of something, people do it for me for free. It's it's phenomenal. And in your, it's going to be the same thing for these little clothing sellers or jewelry makers or whatever it might be. And, and, and you can see this world, like the, a future world where you have – big platforms taking care of all the stuff that is best done at scale, enabling the little guys to pop mm. up. And this is the thing that gives me just a little bit of I – mean, I've been on this kind of like anti-monopoly big company. I'm worried about this sort of thing. And this week it was the case of do we really want a private company deciding what is news and what isn't, which has you know, been a bit of a bugaboo for me over the last six months. <laughs> but at the same time, when you think through the economics and, yes – Monopoly, like we, in the old world order, monopoly is kind of obviously a problem. Hmm. But it, it's actually not totally clear that it is in the future. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, I think the, in, I mean, uh, uh, to go back to your point around uh, social media being great, it's uh, in terms of your business and other small businesses like you, you'd have to do marketing, you'd have to do advertising. But none of that is going to be as effective as if I see one of my friends or if I see some Mark Andreessen posting a link to one of your articles. Like you could run, you could run an ad in some newspaper or whatever. And then you have someone who's widely respected or someone that you know personally posting about this thing. And it's like, oh, well, that's going to count for a lot 
that's going to count a lot more to me as a consumer in terms of going out and finding about what what is this? Who is this guy? And what are all these funny looking colored charts that I always keep seeing in these tweets? Like I'm going to click through and find out more about that. And I'm much more likely to do so uh, than, than in the old world with the old world advertising. And it's possible for a, a small player like you, or I've mentioned my sister previously, she's got a small jewelry company called Adornmont that she has basically built with a little bit of help from me and my family. Other than that, she's using a PR firm in Los Angeles, a logistics firm in New York, and and uh, like found some IT folks in India. She's pulled it all together herself. Once upon a time, that would not have been possible. It just is unimaginable. And I think these big players are happy to facilitate that, that ecosystem. Where things light up is when they start to see things that might pose a threat to their continued dominance, whatever that might be. Right. And just to kind of reiterate, I think your sister is a great example. I mean, where, how do people become aware of your sister's sort of her, her jewelry? I mean, she uses a, a social media. So my mom has become an Instagram maven. My sister is rec- <laughs> I'm serious. My sister has recruited my mom, obviously. So Nikki, my sister, does a lot of the fashion direction and sets a lot of the tone. But she's she's got my mom involved in Instagram, engaging with people, talking about stuff. When people post stuff and tag her, like, mom's in there talking about it. Like, it's kind of crazy. But, like, social media and then getting building relationships with influencers. So there are folks on Instagram. Instagram and, and other social networks that have vast followings. And you start to build relationships there and they wear the jewelry, they tag the jewelry, more people find out about it, they want to recreate the look and away you go and it just keeps spreading and spreading and spreading. So here's the question. What's better for your sister? Is it better to have a large dominant sort of network like Instagram is that's so dominant it can tack on some Snapchat features and, and run, run roughshod all over it? That's actually it's actually good for your sister, right? Totally. You 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 didn't have to answer the rhetorical question. It's I mean this is because you're absolutely right. This is I mean this is one of the things that we've talked about in terms of creating advertising network. Advertisers whether it's creating brand or whatever. I mean, if you're doing direct response you're, and you're you're really at scale, you can afford to arbitrage between the networks and find the ones that's that's giving you the best effective uh, ROI. But particularly when you're doing more brand type advertising and particularly when you're resource constrained like a small entrepreneur, you have attention for one, maybe two of these networks. You don't want to have to split your attention between 10 or 15 of them like you have haven't got time to what was the name of that twitter competitor that was that you paid for it launched a little while ago app.net i remember some wag said oh great another feed to mouth um and it's it's literally that it's like you don't want to have to like keep focusing on all these feeds to stick stuff in you just want to create something you, d- you just want to focus on one. And if it's the place where all your customers are, all the better because then you only need to focus on one. Right. It's a great analogy to tie it to the advertiser thing because that's a point that I've made repeatedly that people fail to appreciate, right? ROI mm. is not just about the R. It's also about the I. Totally. And it, that's what makes this you know, more of a uh, – again, like I said, I, I want to discuss this because I've talked about some of the problems with Monopoly the last couple of times. But – the world we're going into is just so fundamentally different. The the way the internet works, that a lot of the businesses and a lot of the ideas that 
are critical for the future, right? I mean, we, we need businesses like mine. We need businesses like your sister. There's all kinds of businesses that I believe are can be built on the internet that were never possible before thanks to the world being the entire addressable market, thanks to the fact that marketing and reaching people is far more viable and possible in a cost-effective way than ever before. The opportunities are massive, and the reason the opportunities exist is thanks to the fact these big platforms are monopolies. It's true. Now, there is one important caveat here, which is she's working, she's focusing on She's focusing on creating content for one platform. Don't get me wrong, like that makes her life much easier. She's also engaging with influencers on one platform, but she's not buying ads on that platform. So because she's a relatively small player and this is the approach she's taking, she's not going to be subjected to the downside of the what the monopoly might bring, which is restricting advertising supply, therefore artificially increasing the price of what advertising might be. So I feel like that's an important caveat to note there. No, there, it, no that, that's, that's my whole point, though, is the the future are the are the folks like your, your sister. I mean, I, I strongly believe this is I believe there are all kinds of businesses to be built on the Internet serving mm. unique niches that were never possible to be served before, mm-hmm. were never viable to be served before. And that we will look back, just like we look back in the, you know, you, know, you go back to when 98% of people were farmers and now 2% are. The other, the, all those people aren't just sitting around <laughs> today. The number of jobs that we created and and tasks that now need to be done, it's, it's amazing. And I'm confident, I believe that that will happen in the future. And I think a lot of those are, going to be impossible to imagine because they will result from identifying crazy niches on the internet where you can reach all these kinds of people. And it will be critical and to so many of these folks benefit that they can leverage social media, that they can leverage Google, that they can leverage Amazon distribution, right? Imagine starting an e-commerce company tomorrow. Yes, all all these VC-backed e-commerce companies are in trouble, and rightly so because Amazon is so dominant. But it just as VC backed, I would argue VC, you know, putting VC into a news organization is a challenging proposition. <laughs> but You're being polite there. But to be an individual when it comes to content is pretty great. I, I mean, speaking for myself, to be yeah. an individual when it comes to e-commerce, all kinds of new opportunities. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because there there are definitely opportunities that used to exist that don't anymore. And there are now a whole bunch of opportunities that never were possible that are now possible. And I think it's it's almost like in terms of these massive trees inside this rainforest are going to have an impact on what grows around them and the nature of things that grow. And there used to be a series of of tall trees like big multinationals like Walmart and so on that existed and that they had their own ecosystem. And I think part of the reason, part of what folks are struggling with in in this transition is that they're trying to perhaps build businesses that they were able to build in the old world but don't necessarily translate with these new with these new 
gargantuan trees casting all this shade and right. you think about it if you have if you're trying to if you're trying to grow a tree and you're in the shade of one of these big things it's not going to work and it's it's almost like the type of you know, as a result of these platforms and it, it almost sounds trite but as a result of these platforms the nature it's not that innovation is going to go away it's that the nature of innovation that we see in 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 terms of entrepreneurship is going to change dramatically. Like we talked a few episodes about entrepreneurs just being people that have a set of resources and they're going to deploy it in a way that gets them the best return, whatever that might be. And it used to be that perhaps it was news or it used to be news or perhaps it was retail. And it's just going to be the case that that's not a good place to invest anymore. But I don't don't assume that there's not going to be any more entrepreneurship as a result of these platforms because the two examples we've talked about today are fantastic examples of what of what could potentially emerge as a result. Now, obviously, these big platforms will wake up and squish things if you go in direct result to it. Like if you are going to be a Snapchat going after Facebook, they're going to react. But there is all this new space that's available to create things that weren't previously possible as a result of what uh, of their existence. Right. And I, I'm not to say that like your sister and I are going to like save the world, you know, but by any means, I think, you know, Mm. I get the I will I will push back on the that's fine for Ben. I think there, you know, there's more opportunities. But it's also I, I get the case that there's gonna be this very difficult sort of transition. And frankly, there is some degree of optimism in my sort of forecasting that this will be a thing in the long run. Mm-hmm. So I, I fully I fully acknowledge that. But at the same time, it's one of those things where if not this, then what? Like you can't force the you can't force the maintenance of the old model. You can, but you will do it right up until it fails, and then the mm. failure is going to be that much more brutal than it would be otherwise. It's going to be like you know a Great Depression type failure, right? I mean, yep. what 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 happens when and if we talk about all this stuff being intertwined when retail and cars and uh, and real estate and all this sort of stuff that's intertwined in TV and advertising, like if that all collapses at the same time you know that's that's it's gonna be it's gonna be a sort of you know hairy situation i think to 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 say the least you're being polite about it and i mean the interesting thing in the interesting thing in the context of this discussion is the nature of entrepreneurship changes but just as as we talked again a couple of episodes ago we talked about economies almost being like uh, fosterers of app ecosystems the, the the nature of what it is to be in a society that's going to foster this type of uh, entrepreneurship in the future is perhaps going to be different from what it looked like in the past like it's going to be the I mean uh, not to anchor too heavily on two data points but you're in Taiwan and my sister's in Australia and both of those countries have nationalized healthcare. It enables people to go out and take a risk and do these things by themselves, right? And well, well, here, it's, here, well it's interesting. The other topic that we have sorry, I just totally interrupted you, but I just I just No, thought, no, no, I go for it. I, I the degree with which you interrupted me makes me curious as to what you're about <laughs> to say. Well, the other thing, what's really interesting to think about is what is the what is the thing? And we'll we'll in this United States, obviously other countries have had have have had their national healthcare and again i we've highlighted in a previous episode it certainly is thought provoking that there we have not seen 
an alignment with sort of entrepreneurial activity and national healthcare up to date. Again, which is something worth keeping keeping in mind. But the other thing that's interesting is what has the U.S. sort of given its citizens as a sort of standard sort of thing? Education, right? K through twelve education for like a century or or so. Everyone has had access to K through twelve education, and that education has been standardized. It's getting more and more standardized over time, and it has largely. I think you could argue been about preparing people to be workers in the sort of industrial economy that Mm. the U S has been. Mm. And what's interesting is if you step back and look at this sort of from a systematic basis, it's arguably not just that the way we educate needs to change, but what is actually more important sort of in the long run like if you if you do the balance between like say the healthcare thing and the and the education thing if mm-hmm. we need the future of people taking initiative and taking risks it's not just that we need to have a better safety net but in some respects we need to rethink how we put in place the ceilings and the floors on sort of human potential you know the the whole problem with you I see this a lot being I think about this a lot being here in Taiwan and when it comes to education mm. and, you know, Asian countries generally and Taiwan is a certainly an example of this do very well in the sort of like testing, particularly elementary school kids and, and even into mm-hmm. high school and stuff like that. And my daughter having gone to four years of Chinese school, it's very understandable why they know their stuff really, really well. But they know it by brute force, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of memorization. There's a lot of you know, rote sort of learning. And what's good about that is you have a very high floor. Everyone, mm. even the the sort of like dumbest kid, I mean, no offense <laughs> intended that for I sound bad, but is going to come out of your typical Taiwanese school with a pretty solid level of you know math and Chinese literacy, relatively mm-hmm. speaking. Again, a big problem in the schools is addressing kids with the sort of special needs and learning disabilities. So uh, uh, setting that aside, just your mm-hmm. typical like relatively normal kid is Average. going to come out. Yeah. yeah. Again, we're getting a sort of hairy area. But the risk though, and one of the reasons why my daughter next year is is switching to, to, uh, to an American school with more of an American style of education is I – I'm concerned about the sort of stifling that mm. comes from having this the high floor. It's a risk trade-off. You have a high floor, you have a low ceiling. If you invest your money in like government bonds, you're probably not going to lose mm. your money, but you're also not going to make a lot of money. Like that that stuff is inextricably linked. Mm-hmm. And the importance of one of the hard things in figuring out going for, just generally and mm-hmm. also particularly going forward, is where do you put the floors and where do you put the ceilings mm. on a sort of systematic basis? It made sense back in the day to have your floor be for education, to have everyone, the idea you should come out of high school, you should be able to work in a factory and make a good job. And yeah, if you really want to go for it and go to college, that's great, right? But today, if we the future is entrepreneurialism, is about finding unique opportunities and serving them and taking advantage of the internet's ability, you know, the internet scale and niche and social media and all that sort of stuff, this sort of skills and mindset and approach are really, really different. It's, oh, <laughs> it's a really good way of framing the problem. I 
You know what I like about what you just said is that it's so easy when you have these debates to just talk about all the wonderful things as to why you would do that. And yes, there the cost is often framed in terms of the financial cost, but like government spends so much money, you know, blah, blah, blah. But what's really interesting about the way you frame that is that in terms of the payoff to society, you're you're actually like you you by virtue of raising the floor, which may be a noble goal, but there is a cost associated with it, which is potentially lowering the ceiling and getting suddenly when you have a decision that's a trade-off as opposed to just like, I'll set this wherever I want. And maybe there's a financial cost associated with it. But other than that, there's no other impact on society. The decision seems much easier when you frame it in terms of like, oh, well, if you if you start thinking about it, if you take this, then you have to give up that as well. Like that's such a good way of forcing people to be more thoughtful about making the decisions. And you're exactly right. Like, uh, I might, we might be critical about the US for its lack of universal healthcare coverage or being so late to the party. But on the other hand, the nature of the education system and the entrepreneur, the entrepreneurial spirit that is imbued inside of this country will serve it very well going into this future world. Just to tease a little parks, I'm not totally sure I'm praising the American system, to be, to be honest. If you back up and you think about, let's say government has a choice where, mm. again, I'm not saying this is a real choice, but let's just mm-hmm. bear with me here, like theoretically. Yeah. Thought experiment. Thought experiment. Like government can offer universal health care or it can offer K-12 through education. Again, I'm not saying we should have to make that choice, but just bear with me here. That's hot. Yeah, you can argue that the U.S. made the right choice if you think about it in a systematic perspective in that the K through 12 education prepared workers for the industrial economy mm. and they were motivated to get what weren't necessarily great jobs like working on a factory like it's glorified as this great exist at the end of the day you're doing a very rote sort of task over and over mm-hmm. again and you, you're able to get your arm chopped off or you know all those sorts of problems that, mm-hmm. that come with it but at the same time you're motivated to do it why not just to make earn a living but you get health insurance take care of your family Bear with me here. I know this is a very cold-hearted sort of analysis, but you can see from a sort of systematic level where that trade-off actually mm-hmm. kind of made sense, right? Again, not saying there had to be a trade-off. Just bear with me here. But when you think about a future trade-off that might make sense, it might look very different where actually you want people being inventive and creative. So the trade-off now is not training people and giving them an incentive to do boring work. It's mm. enabling people and giving them the safety net to do new, innovative kind of work. And in that case, the trade-off would actually be totally different. You would want mm. to do the healthcare, not because because you want to, you want to incentivize people the exact opposite direction. You don't yes. want to want to incentivize them to do boring rote work where they might get their arm chopped off. You want to incentivize them to create new kinds of jobs and opportunities that we've never even imagined because we, we have to create stuff we've never imagined to to survive, you know, going forward. And on the flip side, the cost, the, you know, again, bear with me here. Previously, mm. you could argue the cost of universal health care is that people lose the incentive to work. Again, just just you could you can make that argument, and, and some some people do. In this case, the cost of 
a guaranteed education that is by definition going to be delivered by a bureaucracy in a very systematic mm-hmm. sort of way is you're actually limiting the incentive to be creative or not you're limiting the ability to be creative. Yeah. And, and it's just a fundamental shift. That That is really such an excellent way of articulating it. And I mean, it, what I... Both of us, I suspect, are big fans of Steve Jobs, and I, there is this thing that he said that stuck with me, and uh, it's it was so helpful to hear it because I didn't even realize I was doing it until he described it, which is you look at the way things are and you assume that they are this way because they are the best way. But really, what happens is people just try things, and it happens to work well enough, and then enough people doing it, and then that's just the way things are. And coming along with uh, critical thinking and cri- critical around the assumptions and assumptions changing around areas like this is just so absolutely fundamental. And you look at the K through 12 education system and how it evolved inside the United States. Like it was, it was built initially in a world where kids were off in- Yeah, it's a factory small- theater system. Yeah, exactly. In Built in small towns where, you know, like the assumptions around- uh, like delivery of information and what the constraining factors were. Like the constraining factor was the people who had the knowledge giving it to the kids. Now they can just type it into like YouTube and you see this with things like Khan Academy. And it's not to say that Khan Academy is going to replace schools, but so many of these assumptions have changed, including what we should be preparing folks for. And yet we're having arguments that are also predicated in the old world around whether it should be public or whether it should be private, as opposed to taking this broader view around like we need to prepare folks for a a world that is completely different. And like, what is the best way to be allocating resources in order to do that? Right. That's the big problem and frustration. And, and, Frankly, probably the reality of of politics when it comes to this sort of stuff is that if the world is fundamentally changing, if we're going back to – if zeros are entering the equation, it follows that everything has to be rethought from first principles. Yeah. Unfortunately, that only seems to happen when the old order becomes so ossified <laughs> that it – it gets exploded, right? Like yeah. the, there's not really any good examples in history of a government like re- going back to first principles and rebuilding the way it thinks about society. You know, it happens through revolution. It happens through through massive upheaval. Like that's mm. and you know that's unfortunately the other sort of probably reality of how we'll get from here to there. Well, isn't that a pleasant thought? Yeah, well, the, maybe, that's the sirens in the background. The, yeah, may, I was about to say maybe you were drinking alcohol because this is all feeling very depressing all of a sudden. <laughs> no, I, I started depressed, so I, I have to edit depressed. But well, there we go. <laughs> anyhow, the, the, the I guess the, the the bigger point is, and I, the reason I wanted to in this podcast is not necessarily dwell on the Google piece I wrote this week or anything like that because it's very easy to point out the problems with monopoly. But what if, just to go back to first principles, mm. what about the benefits of monopoly? Mm. Yep. And if you back up, if there is this sort of world where you have big platforms and small niche players, and that's an ideal sort of realization of an economic uh, economy based on the internet, what other th- first principles ought to be rethought? What other priorities ought there be? Yeah. I, I, ah, 
I wasn't expecting to get into this when we started the conversation, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a really interesting way in and flipping it from like the doom and gloom, which is, it, it's, I mean, this is, this is one of the insights of like behavioral psychologists, behavioral economists, like people anchor on things that they're losing and they value them more than the things that they're gaining. And, and maybe, uh, maybe you and I, uh, have been a little bit guilty of that in terms of like focusing on the downsides of the emergence of these platforms. And it wasn't until you fra- reframed it at the start of this conversation that I started to dig in with you around what the positives are. And it's true. There are some. But if we want to, if we want to take full advantage of them, other things are going to need to change as well. Yep. Anyhow, I'm going to go back to being sad. Uh, yeah. Sorry, not about the world economy, about a stupid sports team. So. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, it, it was good. Good talking to you. Our thanks to Mailchimp for sponsoring this exponent and my drink. And uh, I will talk to you next week. Sounds good, mate. Uh, cheer up. I'm sure. I'm sure they'll be back next year. Yeah, we'll see. Well, by, defini- <laughs> by definition, but yes. Uh, anyhow, I'll talk to you later. <laughs> See ya. Bye-bye. Sorry, can I make one more point? <clears throat> yeah, that of I, course. I, I wanted because it gets back to why I wrote the, the, this. One of the things that bugs me is frustrating me about this whole fake news, like beyond the fact that I think it's vastly overrated as as an issue and the response to it is that this is I'm not absolutely certain that the for all the reasons we just described. I think there's a certain inevitability to this jungle future where there is the massive platforms and there's all the small players. And in that future, though, it's critical. Those platforms are going to have so much power that I think it's it has to be a first-order priority that they be as neutral as possible. That should be the governing factor. And what makes me so frustrated and upset about this fake news thing is the immediate follow-up that these platforms stop being neutral. Again, it's all a trade-off. I'm not saying fake news is a good thing, not in the slightest. I'm just saying you are making a massive trade-off when you insist that Google or Facebook do something about it. Mm, I, and I, this yeah. is where my dis- my discomfort is. Again, I can envision a world where actually the the optimal outcome is that Google and Facebook and Amazon are these sort of dominant players and we we find a way to, to, to make it work. But if they are dominant, by all means, can we keep them out of subjectivity, please, to the extent that is possible? And yet, not only – it's not like Facebook and Google started being political or at least overtly political and everyone's like – this. they're being pushed on. By the media, they're being pushed on by all these folks saying, do it, yes, do it, take an opinion, leverage your power. Yeah, I mean, I I would concur with this. I, I mean, I obviously agree with you about the scale of the fake news thing. I, I think it's completely blown out of proportion. It makes for fantastic headlines, but the extent of it is is nowhere near what is is what is blown up i would agree in general you want these things neutral um but even i mean there's even arguments around what neutrality reflects but i i think stepping back further like i've like it's history repeating a little bit in that people there were principles that president obama for example uh decided to uh like uh, ignore 
uh, around privacy and so on, potentially, that uh, people were like, oh, it's okay. Like, he's a good guy. And it's easy to say when I agree with them or when they're doing what I think they should be doing, this is fantastic. But you start down the slope right. and you you start down the slope and you hand you create a lever and you hand it to an individual and almost all these companies are controlled uh, like the capital structure of them is such that they have founders at the helm and those founders effectively have absolute power. You are creating these these levers and you're handing them to these founders and it's great when you agree with them, but inevitably you're not going to agree with them about something. Just as we documented the rise of Murdoch from this kind of uh, idealistic guy saying we should have lots of competition in newspapers to what we see right now, like you don't know that there's not going to be a similar transformation around one of these moguls. And if you really want them holding these levers, I'm with you on that. I I think that sounds like a terrible idea. Right, exactly. This is not to impinge anyone at Facebook or anyone at Google who I think are all by and large good people doing their best. It's mm-hmm. just the reality that centralized power is a really bad thing, especially this much on the internet. Power. On the internet, it is almost inevitable that the centralized power accumulate. So, given that, given that reality, I think having very tight bounds on how that power is leveraged is is incredibly important. And the last place to push it into is yeah sort of overt sort of political activity it, it anyhow I, I want I, I just want to put that in because that's kind of a tie into like why I wrote the Google thing I, I don't have great answers I don't but it bothers me the extent to which people are being blind to this in my estimation mm. yeah anyhow, that's fair. anyhow uh, I will talk to you later for, for real this time <laughs> see you mate All right, bye